This time we'll turn our attention again to the book of Mark. This time we'll read from Mark chapter 9. Perhaps one may be wondering why two sermons from the book of Mark. And one of the reasons is, the main reason, of course, is I've been working on a series of sermons over the years, since about four years ago. And this is about where I have come in that series, although I have preached another sermon from chapter 9, but this is about where we have ended in that series before leaving the work in uh, the mission work in the Philippines. So at this time, we'll continue in the book of Mark. We'll begin the scripture reading at verse 27 of chapter 8, and then read through to the end of, of chapter 8, and then to verse 13 of chapter 9. Then the text for the sermon will be verses 2 through 10 of Mark chapter 9. So beginning the scripture reading at Mark 8 verse 27, there we read this word of God. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am. And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, Let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, 
that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now the words of our text, verses 2 through 10. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist or knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. As they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. Thus far we read in God's holy inspired word. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the pivotal events in the ministry of Jesus, according to the perspective of the book of Mark, takes place in verses 27 through 30 of Mark chapter 8. Up until that point in Mark chapter 8, which we read, the identity of Christ was not established openly. But then Jesus says to his disciples, and that's not just the twelve, but in the presence of many others, he asked them, whom do men say that I am? And then they gave their answers. And then he asked the disciples, but whom do ye say that I am? While many of the public, up until that point in Jesus' ministry, had answered the question, well, this is Elijah, or Jeremiah, or John the Baptist has come from, risen from the dead, as Herod had thought. In contrast to either that ignorance or unbelief, Peter and the disciples 
answer that question of Christ emphatically. Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Son of David, promised. Thou art that Messiah. They did that according to the measure of the faith which the Lord gave to them and worked in them, and answered that question correctly. He is the Christ, the anointed servant of Jehovah, to be our king, our eternal high priest, our eternal king, our only high priest, and our chief prophet and teacher. Now having established that, openly Christ reveals not only his identity, yes, I am the Christ, through the mouths of his disciples, he then immediately also openly declares, and I am going to die at the hands of the wicked rulers, but rise again from the dead. After that revelation of Christ, of his identity openly, yes, I am the Christ, and this is the work that the Father has sent me to do, there follow two events that prepare us for our text. First of all, Jesus taught true discipleship. To be a true disciple of Christ, it must be evident that one has denied himself, not denied himself things, I won't have this, I won't have that. No, he denies himself. His own will, his own wisdom, his own desires. Takes up that cross of suffering in behalf of Jesus Christ and his word. And follows Christ wherever Christ is pleased to lead us in this life. Wherever that may be. Those who do not follow him unbelief, will not deny themselves, take up a cross to suffer for the sake of Christ and follow him in life wherever he leads, of them Christ will be ashamed. But of those who do follow him by the grace of God, of them Christ will not be ashamed, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with the holy angels. And the question, in light of our text, is, well, what is that glory to which we as disciples are on a pilgrimage? What is that glory? Did Christ know what that glory was? How could he be sure that he was going to receive that glory? He speaks that of discipleship very assuredly in verse 38, when he shall come, certainly, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The text answers those questions. And then secondly, at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus said also that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God coming, come with power. What kind of kingdom is that? Very different than what Peter had thought because of which he opposed Jesus when Jesus said, I am going to die and rise again. That's how I will establish my kingdom. Now I speak the truth. This is what will come to pass. Peter thought, no, 
That's not how the kingdom is going to come. Jesus had to rebuke him very sharply. Get thee behind me, Satan. Because Satan was using him to tempt Jesus out of the path of faithfulness to the Father. But also rebuking Peter for a false expectation, a false understanding of the kingdom. And that raises the question, well, what kind of kingdom is this? Jesus comes to establish, and those of whom he is speaking in the the multitude with him will not die until they see that kingdom. When would it come in great power? And the text is given to us and to the disciples and to the church of all ages to answer those questions. It's answered when we see Jesus transfigured on the top of that mountain in Galilee. Let's now consider for a few moments the transfiguration of Jesus. Notice the glorious event, the wise reasons, and the resulting significance, especially for us. After these events in chapter 8 and what Jesus said at the beginning of chapter 9, And especially after his revelation of his death and resurrection, as verse 30, or rather verse, I think it's there, verse 32, he began to speak this openly, verse 32. After speaking that very plainly, he was going to die and rise again. Jesus goes with his disciples into seclusion, in prayer with the Father. Jesus selected his disciples to go with him, not all twelve, but just three, Peter, James, and John. That was not unusual for Jesus to do that, but also it was sufficient for his purpose that they become eyewitnesses of a very special event that the Father would bring to pass before they return to the other disciples at the bottom of the hill in, in a place in Galilee, in Capernaum. The selection of those disciples was not discriminatory against the other apostles, as though Jesus didn't like them. But just as the Lord knows us and knows our abilities and his wisdom has a place for us with our abilities and gifts in his church and has different positions for us in his kingdom, so Jesus taught his disciples, I will have these three come with me and witness my prayer with the Father on the mountain. Jesus did this again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Took Peter, James, and John to witness and to be with him as he wrestled with the Father in prayer about the very same thing as in the text. Jesus needed to go to the Father in fellowship, in prayer, in connection with what he said would happen, I will die and rise again from the dead. This reveals to us, beloved, that Jesus is indeed both God and man. He has a human nature just like our human nature except for sin. 
And although there is that exception, yet he had a weakened human nature in which he understood he was dependent upon God for his work as a man, as the mediator, Jesus Christ. And that should remind us that if Jesus needed to pray, if Jesus needed fellowship with the Father with regard to his work, then certainly we need prayer, we need fellowship with our Father in heaven in which to pour out our hearts before him and seek from him the strength that we need as mere creatures, weak and sinful beside, to be faithful to him as his servants. And that was the need of Christ as the man he needed, fellowship with the Father with regard to his work of dying for his people at the end of that road of humiliation. While Jesus was in prayer with the Father on the mountain, the Father answered the prayer of Jesus in an amazing transfiguration. Something which it apparently appears that Jesus himself did not expect, but which the Father gave to him. A transfiguration. What happened? Suddenly, in the presence of Peter, James, and John, Jesus was praying to the Father, and he was changed. We're told his clothing became as white as snow. Whatever color it was, it now suddenly was white. Think of the cloth on the communion table, white, pure white. But then the Bible says, even whiter than that, whiter than what that color is of those who made that fabric, whiter than what a man who works in a laundry, a laundromat to wash clothes, so white that it was as bright as the sun, so that his face also began to shine, brighter than the sun. So think of that, children. How long can... We look at the sun. It's too bright. We can't. We can glance at the sun high in the sky, but that's about it. It's so bright and powerful. These earthly eyes cannot behold the glory of the sun as God can behold the glory of the sun. God doesn't need to blink when he looks at the sun. We can't do that. That gives us a glimpse of the glory the brightness, the whiteness of the glory into which Jesus was changed in his human nature. And he was changed from the earthly, from his black hair, his Jewish complexion, the clothes which he had, suddenly into this glory which the disciples could not even look at. It was so bright. The Bible teaches us that he was transfigured into that heavenly glory very briefly, long enough for two men to visit him. Two visitors came and were sent by the Father to Jesus to talk with him. Well, who came to visit him? 
Moses and Elijah were sent by the Father to talk with Jesus. They could do that because both Elijah and Moses had received their resurrection bodies. We know that is true with Elijah. Elijah was received up into heaven by the whirlwind, escorted by the chariot of Israel and the flaming horsemen. He didn't die. He was taken up into heaven, similar to Enoch. Moses also received his resurrection body. He died, we read in the book of Deuteronomy, and then we read God buried him. Then we read in the book of Jude that Michael the archangel had a dispute with the devil over the body of Moses that was in heaven, indicating that Moses had been raised by the hand of God and he received his resurrection body. Together, Moses and Elijah are sent talk to Jesus and their heavenly glory together. Well, what did they talk about? They were talking about what Jesus had said earlier in the passage in verse 31. The saying which he spake openly that he would be killed and after three days rise again talking about the work of Christ as our mediator in his suffering and in his resurrection, according to the Old Testament word of God, the Old Testament scriptures. We understand that Moses represented the law, all the types and the shadows, all of the ceremonies and the tabernacle and the temple. And from that perspective, he spoke to Jesus of the work that Jesus was now to do. Elijah represented all of the prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures from the beginning to the end, right to the book of Malachi, and talked to Jesus from that perspective of the prophets. So that together, they spoke of what Jesus himself had revealed as the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and the types and the shadows, and the Old Testament prophecies through all of the prophets, including Elijah in the Old Testament. And briefly, face to face, Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus in their resurrection glory, in the hope of the word which Jesus had come to reveal as our chief prophet and teacher in his person, as the Son of God in his natures, God and man, and through his work of suffering, dying, and rising again from the dead. And Jesus saw that in, their in, in, in them, in their heavenly glorious bodies, and also experienced that in himself. Then Peter, witnessing that, blurted out an unwise response, something like an orchestra, and then there is a, a violin or a cello completely out of tune and, and, and just very discordant, not fitting at all the situation. He speaks out, Master, it is good for us to be here. 
let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He wanted them to, in his mind, they're going to stay here on the earth, which reflects his view and expectation of the kingdom of Christ and his earthly conception and how that kingdom would come, which comes out in his rebuke to Jesus that Jesus was not going to die and he sh Jesus should never talk about that. That's not how the kingdom is going to come. The same understanding comes out here too. Let's make tabernacles like Moses did in the wilderness and have this glory in these places so that they may continue among us. Peter did not understand. God had not given him the faith to understand yet. And so he did not have the faith to speak the truth of the work of Jesus Christ and the truth of the word of Christ that he had come to fulfill and reveal to his people as the fulfilled word of God. Peter would understand, and he would speak of that on the day of Pentecost, and then under inspiration in 2 Peter chapter 1, but not yet didn't understand fully. A cloud came from the Father, which reminds us of the Shekinah cloud that came upon the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, a special cloud which represented the presence of the triune God. God came, covered the three, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. We don't know what Jesus saw in his heavenly glory. But we do know he enjoyed that fellowship with Moses and Elijah and with his Father in heaven and rejoiced in the word which the Father said concerning him in the presence of the disciples, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. He is holy. He is righteous. He is truth. He is the word. Hear his word. And then suddenly, it's gone. The disciples covering their eyes and on the ground are met with a tap on the shoulder and Jesus saying to them, Arise, let us go. Jesus, the disciples noticed, was back to normal again. His face was just like it was before. His clothes, same as before. But as the other accounts of the events of Christ's ministry indicate, there was one thing they noticed in his eyes, in his face. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. His face was set to go forward in the work which the Father had sent him to do. Then he commanded his disciples, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. Then you may say, until then, you must keep it a secret. And until then, they did not tell anyone. They only had lots and lots of questions. What did the transfiguration mean? What was its connection to the resurrection? What did the resurrection mean? 
What does this have to do with the kingdom which Christ has come to establish? He is the son of David. We said so. He's the Christ. What is his death and resurrection? And then this transfiguration. How does this all fit together? They didn't understand yet. But they would. After Pentecost. Which leads us then to consider why did the Father give to Jesus this transfiguration? In answer to that question, there are five reasons. Two of them apply to Jesus, and three of them apply to us, to the church. From the viewpoint of Jesus, reason number one is this was a confirmation for him of his faithfulness to the Father. The man Jesus Christ needed that confirmation, encouragement. The Father said in the cloud, this is my beloved Son. And you children remember, we've heard that before, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. The voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now we have a repetition of that same statement. Was this just repetition? No. What the Father says in the transfiguration is a testimony to the faithfulness of Jesus from his baptism to that point. But since his baptism in every step of the way, from the temptation in the wilderness to the calling of his disciples, to his rejection from Nazareth, to his confrontation with the Pharisees, and all of the miracles which he did in between his baptism and his transfiguration, it was clear to the Father in heaven, he is righteous. He has not deviated from the pathway which I have set for him. He is and has fulfilled perfectly everything I have sent him to say and to do. He is fulfilling all of the Old Testament laws, ceremonies, types, and shadows, and the prophecies represented by Elijah. Perfect. The Father gives an authoritative declaration in the presence of two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as the perfect Lamb of God sent to take away our sin. As the man Jesus Christ, from the viewpoint of his human nature, standing before the horror of the cross and having to bear that eternal weight of God's wrath, that was motivation. His Father approved of him. And in that, Jesus continued down that road to the horror of hell on the cross. Then number two, from the viewpoint of Jesus, this was a foretaste of that which God had set before him, the goal of his redemptive work. We often emphasize, and that's correct too, that the goal of the work of Christ was his death on the cross. The goal of his work was his atonement, the shedding of his blood, so that we 
as God's elect might be covered in the sight of God and it be revealed, yes, God is righteous in viewing us as righteous in our covenant head, Jesus Christ, and imputing to us his righteousness. God is just. God is good in that work. But nevertheless, the cross was not the end point of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Certainly was the foundation, an unchangeable, everlasting foundation, the only ground of our salvation. But there's more than just the cross. And that is what God reminds Jesus in the transfiguration. Jesus receives a glimpse of what was waiting, awaiting him on the other side of that, that large, looming horror of being forsaken by God on the cross. He must look beyond that blackness, as it were, to something else. Heavenly glory. What was that heavenly glory? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, which describes Jesus' ministry as a race, Hebrews 12, verse 2 tells us what was set before him. And describing heavenly glory, Hebrews 12, verse 2 calls it the joy that was set before him. Joy. The heavenly joy of complete victory over all of his enemies. Yes. The heavenly joy of finishing the work which the Father sent him to do. Yes, that's part of it. But also, the joy of having after been forsaken by God to be received of God because of his obedience back into the fellowship of the Father, never to be sent out of that glory again, but to stay there permanently in that glory with the Father in the presence of the holy angels and with his people forever. That's the joy. The joy of the covenant in its fulfillment and its full glory with God in the new heavens and earth. That was the joy set before him in the transfiguration as a foretaste. He received a foretaste of that glory, especially when the cloud received Moses and Elijah and Jesus in the presence of the Father. You children can imagine very easily what a foretaste is. Imagine if it's your birthday or imagine on Thursday when we have Thanksgiving and all of the good food that God is pleased to give us. And perhaps your mother this week will have baked a pie, different kinds of pies. One of them is your favorite. And your mother puts whipping cream on the top. And in the morning before you go to church, she's going to put that in the fridge and cool it perhaps. And she takes your finger and smiles at you and, and takes your finger and dips it in the whipping cream that you, so, you enjoy so well and lets you hmm, taste a little bit of that pie. Knowing that later in the day, 
you're going to receive the entire piece of pie and with all that whipping cream piled on top. You receive a foretaste of the joy that you're going to have later in the day when finally you may have your dessert. That's similar to what Jesus receives, but in a far greater way, more glorious way. The Father, as it were, takes his finger and dips it in that heavenly glory which is set before him, gives Jesus a moment in the presence of Moses and Elijah to taste, to hear, to smell, to see, to feel that glory which Moses and Elijah already had in part, which he would receive also in his resurrection and ascension into heaven at the right hand of God. That foretaste, as it is perhaps for you children in that earthly way, a foretaste to persevere through the day and look expectantly to what's coming, was a mighty encouragement to Jesus as he stood before the horror of the cross. That foretaste gave him the strength to look beyond that suffering to returning unto the presence of the Father in glory for you and for me. And that leads us then to the three reasons of the transfiguration with respect to us. Number one, This transfiguration of Jesus by the Father was a confirmation to the church of his identity. Many people had confessed, well, I think he's Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah or whatever it was. But the Lord confirms to his apostles, no, your confession, thou art the Christ. That is true. He is the Christ. The Father in heaven attests or confirms that confession of their faith by his voice from heaven and the glory which he gives to Jesus. He is the true prophet of Jehovah, sent to reveal to the church fully all of the word of God, all of the counsel of God concerning our salvation. He doesn't lie to you. He doesn't deceive you. He speaks the truth. And his word is absolutely true. That's encouraging to us. So that in the second place, another reason for the transfiguration is to understand that Christ who is true to the word of God and all that God reveals in his word as the revelation of that word, then in his work was fully obedient to the Father in love, and not only to the Father in love, but unto, but also in love to you and me. Now we mentioned earlier that the transfiguration confirmed the obedience of Jesus and that he had not swerved from whatever the Father had sent him to do. That's true. That's encouraging to us to know that the righteousness of Christ is absolutely perfect. So that when God justifies us by faith alone and imputes to you the righteousness of Christ, we don't fear in the presence of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. 
But there's more. After the transfiguration was finished, we also see the faithfulness and the dedication of Christ to the Father and to us, his church. For in theory, the transfiguration showed that Christ could have left the earth and gone directly to glory. Didn't need to suffer for us to receive that glory. He's God. In theory, he could have avoided the curse. He wouldn't. He didn't. But he could have. And the Lord shows us, giving him that foretaste of the glory that was before him, and then returning Jesus back to this life under the weight of humiliation, the weight of our sin, and all of the suffering and misery that was heaped upon him for our redemption, we notice that Jesus was not murmuring when that happened. When he left that glory with the Father and Moses and Elijah and came back to his disciples, he did not, oh boy, sigh. No. Tapped his disciples on the shoulder and said, Arise! Let us go. And his face was set to Jerusalem. That, beloved, shows to you and to me the faithfulness, the dedication, the loyalty of Christ to the Father, and thus to us, to save us, and not to forsake us, and to leave us. He so loved you and me, he left that glory with the Father, and was willing to descend to the depths of hell for you and me, who will never deserve that. Then number three, the transfiguration gave to the apostles a clear revelation of the glory that Christ would receive for his church, himself, and for his church after his resurrection and ascension. They did not need to theorize about it and give their own speculations. Jesus was preparing them to be eyewitnesses of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering, which they witnessed, and his death on the cross, and in the truth of the resurrection. This is the glory they saw which Christ will receive in his resurrection, in his ascension into heaven. We saw a glimpse of the glory of the Lord, and they could tell that to those to whom they were sent to preach the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now we may wonder, what about the church today? The apostles saw that, Peter, James, and John. We didn't. So is the word that we as a church preach at a disadvantage? The answer of Peter himself under inspiration in first and second Peter chapter one, verse sixteen is no. We also have a sure revelation of that glory of Christ in the scriptures. Peter says in second Peter chapter one, verse sixteen, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power 
which they saw in that glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, that power and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, from that Shekinah cloud that enveloped Jesus and Moses and Elijah. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We saw it. Nevertheless, he goes on in verse 19, we have the church, the apostles then have also a more sure word of prophecy. More sure than if Peter were to stand here and tell us, I saw the Lord in his glory. More sure than that is the Holy Scriptures, which the rest of 2 Peter chapter 1 refers to. It's one of the proof texts of the inspiration of Scripture. We have in the Scriptures the infallible revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. Yes, crucified, but now alive in that glory of which God gave him a foretaste, now in full reality at the Father's right hand. Here is that truth. Here we see it in the text. Now from the viewpoint of its fulfillment in Christ at God's right hand. That's the sure word which the church preaches has been prepared to preach by Christ so that when we preach the gospel, it's not the gospel of a Christ who has died, and that's the end of the story. It's the good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the glory which he has received at the Father's right hand, from which now he continues to govern all things and gather his church into that glory with him in heaven. That, beloved, is encouragement to you and to me in our pilgrimage here below in our work as his disciples and servants in his kingdom. We serve a kingdom which is victorious and glorious. That's the glory of the kingdom of heaven. Not earthly as the apostles expected, but heavenly glory. That's the substance of the kingdom of heaven. And that's the kingdom which God works in you by his spirit, through regeneration, and by the word, which we hear in the preaching of the gospel. Therefore, the resulting significance is, as the Father said, hear him. Listen to that Christ in that glory. For there is no salvation to be heard in any other voice. Don't listen to the voices of the world. Don't listen to the voices of the entertainment of the world, and the voices of the music of the world, or those voices who say, we've discovered a new way, a new way to get comfort and hope in this life apart from Jesus Christ, or voices that promote a new fad, in the church world that is apart from the scriptures or works against the office of Christ? No. Don't listen to those things which by nature you and I are prone to listen to, our own flesh, 
here the Father says, kill him. Let's not be like Peter. Lord, be it far from thee. Follow our ideas of the kingdom. No, here him who stands, sits in his glory at my right hand. Hear his doctrine, for there is no salvation. There is no happiness. There is no deliverance from all of the burdens of this life and the troubles of this life or even addictions in this life. There's no deliverance from that apart from Christ and his word. He is our only hope, our only redemption through his atoning blood which he shed for you and me and in his resurrection from the dead by which he has gained for us the life of immortality which he works in us by his Holy Spirit. So that to hear that voice of Christ you and I need that indwelling spirit brings us into that cloud of glory with the Father, into that covenant of life with him and works in us true faith to know, yes, Jesus is the light of full salvation. That's clear from the text. We also need the Holy Spirit to convince us that this Christ is my Lord and my Savior. He is my light and my salvation. Hear him, beloved, and trust then in his word that he speaks to you in his glory. He knows the road of suffering in which you walk, for he is the one that leads you down that pathway to humble you and me. But he has made that way of suffering a highway to serve your salvation. That highway has been paved in his blood for you. God's curse has been removed. It's paved in the blessing of the Lord. So that all of our pains, all of our problems, all of our persecutions will serve that glory. These things will not endure. That glory which is awaiting us will endure forever. And out of that glory, Christ then speaks to you his word. He speaks to you his promises and your suffering. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He reminds us that that suffering is just for a time and works for us a far greater weight of what? Eternal glory that which he has at God's right hand. And in the darkness of your suffering, he shines with the glory of that joy. Beloved, he is the captain of your salvation. He is the anchor of your soul to that glory. Hear him. Trust in his word. Don't doubt the word which he declares to you and the promises which he speaks to you and your seed. Christ is the true prophet of Jehovah. His word is absolutely sure. Trust in him and so find rest for your weary souls. 
Amen. Let us pray. O most merciful and faithful Father in heaven, grant to us the grace to believe that Christ has obtained for us that glory with thee and thy covenant forever in body and soul. Encourage us so that after we have suffered a while, we may in true hope and sure confidence in Christ expect to receive our crown of glory. Only for Jesus' sake. Amen.